Let's bow our heads in a word of prayer before I begin this morning. Father, we do thank you again for the gift of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we know that we can continue to sing about your great gift that you've given us. And I just pray, Lord, that this season would just not be a season where we just do a lot of things. We visit, we have some good food, and we share gifts. But I pray, Lord, the focus of this season would be the true, real true meaning of Christmas. And Lord, we, we know that the world has lost this. Uh, commercialism has taken over. And, uh, and Lord, you're not even in the picture anymore. So I pray, Lord, the church's job is to make sure you stay there and that you are the reason for this season. And so I pray, Lord, that today you would just allow us to look at the word of God and consider our own condition before you, our own standing before you, that you may give us clear thinking on that, that we may know that we have a relationship with you through Christ, and that we can hold to that passage of Scripture, that these things have been written to us, that we may know we have eternal life. And I pray, Lord, as we consider that, that we would not deceive ourselves, but we would see our real standing, and if we have not trusted you, then today may be the day. This season may be the season that we really know the true meaning of Christian, of Christmas. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So Christmas means many different things to many people. It means gifts, receiving and giving. It means to some, Rudolph the red-nosed reindeer, along with his boss, Santa Claus. It means mistletoe. It means I'm dreaming of a white Christmas. It means the night before Christmas and all through the house, not a creature was stirring, not even a mouse. All these may have meaning for you or they may be meaningless to you. The most important thing to know is that these things are not the true meaning of Christmas. So no matter what you think of Christmas or what you should, should or should not do at Christmas, if you are going to celebrate, celebrate Christmas at all, then you ought to know at least the true meaning of Christmas. So what is the true meaning of Christmas? Well, to get at the meaning, we need to really examine the purpose and the price it took to make Christmas meaningful, and then what it actually produces when you understand that, and to whom does it have meaning in reality. So the first thing I want to look at, and I want you to take your Bibles to and turn to Romans, the book of Romans, chapter 3, verse 23. I'm going to be giving you a lot of passages. Some I'm going to ask you to look up. Some I'm going to put on the screen, just uh, so you can follow along. But the first thing is really the purpose of Christmas, to find its meaningfulness. Jesus Christ would never have have had to be born into the world, and we would never have to have 
Christmas except for three things, at least three things in a minimal sense, but in a very important sense. And the first reason is the fall of man into sin. For it says in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. See, for all people have a huge problem, and the problem is sin. Sin has separated a person from God. The condition will be fatal if the cure is not applied. This is the worst effect of sin. Separation from God is the worst. The God who created us in his image. So scripture really expresses the effects of sin upon us like this. Sin is missing the mark or the goal God has appointed and falling short of the glory of God, which we were created to enjoy. Sin also means to deviate from the right path and, of course, finding ourselves under a verdict of guilty and in the presence of an eternal judge who judges clearly and righteously. Sin also means to rebel against a rightful and loving king. The Bible tells us that sin is lawlessness. And then sin is a really a traitor to the goodness of God because we don't listen to what he says, we just do our own thing. So, first thing is the fall of man, if we're going to know the purpose. The second is God's curse upon man because of sin, where the Bible tells us in Genesis, then to Adam he says, because you have listened to the voice of your wife, And have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. So, see, the curse that came because of Eve and Adam's disobedience to God really made life very hard. And it made it twisted. Because now sin came in, darkness came in, and they were actually blinded to the fact of how one gets right with God. See, sin has left mankind wandering, lost, and spiritually dead without understanding about what to actually do. That this sad condition in which people find themselves that sin has left man under the dominion of sin and death, as it says in Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. And then, of course, it declared man guilty before God under a sentence of condemnation. And then if you look at your scriptures in Romans 3.19 and 20, it says, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. For it tells us, by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So if one remains in that condition, apart from Christ, well, the wrath of God will remain upon them. And so the Bible does tell us in John chapter 3 and verse number 36, he who believes in the Son has eternal life. 
But he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides upon them. So real life, the Bible's talking about, is in God. But sin has separated mankind from the real life that they could enjoy in God. So this is precisely why the Creator became man, to provide a way back to God. Listen to what this passage of Scripture says in 1 Timothy 1.15. It says, it is a trustworthy statement, deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. Paul was writing to Timothy saying, listen, I'm the greatest of sinners. I persecuted the church. I came against the plan of God, and so I'm on the top of the pile when it comes to being a sinner. Matter of fact, sin has left man in such a deadened spiritual condition that his very mind is distorted. And his will to do things is affected. Now he wants to do just what he wants and not what God wants him to do. So the price of sin is huge. No one would be, ever be able to pay it off. No weak, sinful, mortal being would be able to pay off the debt of sin that we owe before God. There's nothing that we could do in and of ourselves to rescue ourselves from this curse that we're under. So the price of sin, the Bible already told us, is death, eternal separation from Almighty God. God is hes a holy God. He's a just God. He cannot look upon sin. It even tells us in the prophets, in Habakkuk, it says, your eyes are too pure to approve evil. And you cannot look on wickedness with favor. So the scriptures again tell us, therefore, just as one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all have sinned. So then that means in the word of God, through, through the transgression of one, it resulted in condemnation to all people. And that's the plight that we have today in this world, is that we are under condemnation. That's not good news. That's bad news. And so but people need to know the bad news before they can ever get to the, the good news. They need to know that so they can get to the real meaning of what Christmas is, or it'll get clouded out by all kinds of other things. So these three things that I've just mentioned that of being the fall of man, the curse, God's curse upon man because of sin, and the price of sin leads me to a second point, and of course this point is the price to make Christmas meaningful. So these three things give us a clearer understanding of the purpose of why Jesus had to come into this world. And of course, he had to come to pay a price. So with the fall of man into sin and man being totally unable to save himself, the Bible tells us, for the grace, for by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not as a result of works, 
so that no one may boast, that God would have to save us, in other words. We were dead in trespasses and sin, and God would have to step up and pay the price to make Christmas meaningful to you and to me. So the price had to be paid for sin by someone in order to satisfy the justice of God the Father so that sinners can be forgiven and made right with God. So Christmas becomes meaningful when one sees the qualifications of the man who was chosen to actually pay the price for sin. This man had to have certain qualifications. Number one, he had to be sinless. He had to be sinless. He had to be a man who was perfect and never committed or never would commit a sin. Now, there's no human being that I know that can fit that qualification, except one, and there's only one. And of course, so this first, this man had to be sinless. In fact, the Bible tells us in Second or First Peter chapter two that this is what Jesus did not do when he came to provide for the price of sin. He did not come like we think he would come. He did not sin. He was actually suffered as an innocent one. And if sinless, he must have been suffering for someone else. For the Bible tells us that he, for him who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf so that we may become the righteousness of God in him. So he did not sin. Secondly, he did not use words to bring insult, the Bible tells us in Peter, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. Now, that's showing that, listen, this is not the normal way to fight against something. We would normally take hands into our, uh, things into our own hands and, and hold revenge on somebody who was our enemy, but Jesus didn't do, do that. He did not bring, no deceit was found in his mouth. In fact, the Bible says that he not only was he the innocent one, but he was the silent one. He's, he was a lamb led to the slaughter, and he was silent against his accusers. That's who he was. And then, of course, he did not use violence or threats, for it says in 1 Peter 2, chapter 23, it says, While being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats. So Jesus suffered also as the nonviolent one, even though people said that Jesus was possessed by demons, that he was a glutton, that he was a wine-bibber, that he was a blasphemer, that he was delusional. He perverted. He was a perverter of the nation and deceiver of people. And yet, the prophet Isaiah said about this sinless man that he would accomplish his mission without violence. In fact, instead of him being violent towards others, he took the violence for us, the violence that sin produces. So Jesus never strayed in word or deed. He never got upset at all whatsoever. He never used anyone for a laugh. For the Bible tells us that you know that he appeared 
in order to take away sins. That was his mission. And here's his character. In him there is no sin. 1 John 3 and verse number 5. So Jesus suffered verbally, physically, and spiritually, and yet threatened no retaliation on his tormentors. But he endured all that for us. So he had to be a sinless man. Secondly, he had to be a perfect man. It says in 1 Timothy 1, 18 and 19, it says, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or, or gold from your, from your futility or, or futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as a lamb unblemished and unspotless, the blood of Christ. So Jesus Christ had to be, this man had to be perfect, and we know this man is Jesus Christ. So with precious blood, as a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. So Christ's blood is of inestimable greater value than any earthly temporary commodity like silver or gold. Jesus purchased us with his own blood, not with any temporal human payment, because without the shedding of blood, without Christ's death in the place of sinners, no sin could be covered or washed away at all. So he had to be a perfect man. In fact, the Bible also tells us, it says that God ransomed his children by Christ's extraordinary death. It does not say in our scripture, it does not say Christ is a lamb in the class of all other lambs, a top quality, unblemished, and spotless lamb like in the Old Testament sacrificial system. No, Christ actually stands alone as such a lamb, and there being no, none other like him before or after, that the person of Christ is in the mind of the author, Peter, and it's not an animal that he has in his mind, a lamb, but it is the original. It is Christ is the original of all the copies and shadows of the Old Testament that looked forward to what he was going to do. It was like when John the Baptist came on the scene after 400 years that God wasn't speaking through a prophet. This is what he said when Jesus came on the scene, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So he had to be a perfect man, and he qualified for that. Also, thirdly, he had to be a willing man, willing to die. Not for himself, but in the place of others. I like, again, if you're still there in Romans, in Romans 5, 6 through 8, it says, For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one would hardly, would hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man, someone would dare to die. But, verse 8, but God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. So Jesus knew exactly what he was doing and for whom he was doing it. He knew that. He was a willing man. He wasn't forced to do it. He wanted to do it. And then a fourth thing is that he, was, he had to be an able man, an able man, that he had to have the ability to carry out the plan of salvation unto completion. 
So this man must be able to do something. And so what did Jesus do? At least some of the things he did was, number one, he had to carry away our sin. He had to do that. It's actually, it says in 1 Peter 2.24, and he himself bore our sin in his body. So he had to carry away our sin, which we could never have done. And so this is the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ, where in that atonement, he provides forgiveness, he provides cleansing of sin, he, prov- he averts the wrath of God away from the sinner, and the Bible also says that he ransomed us. Where, and that means he had to pay the full price for sin. It tells us in Mark chapter 10 and verse number 45, to give his life a ransom for many. So his life was a ransom. It's the Greek word lutron, which means the price paid to effect release of the one who was held in bondage. So the, the ransom was offered to God the Father against whom we have sinned and who alone has the power to inflict the penalty. So that means that Jesus saw his children caught in the slave market of sin and had pity on their hopeless situation. How did he do that? By paying the ransom price with his own blood in order to redeem out of slavery his children and bring us into the family of God. So Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross purchased the release from bondage of those many sinners who would believe in him. So this man had to be sinless. He had to be perfect. He had to be willing. He had to be able. And maybe this one I should have given first, but I left it for last, is that he had to be God who would become a man. The birth of Jesus into the world, that passage of Scripture that is so famous, she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, and he will do what? Save his people from their sins. So it's, it's the very fact of sins that keep us separated from God. Unless Jesus takes care of those sins, you're still in your sin. And remember, there's only two, way to, two ways to die. You either die in your sin or you die in the Lord. You can't die. There's no other way to die. If you die in the Lord, of course, things are taken care of. If you die in your sin, the payment has not yet been paid, and that's why there is a place called hell, and it's eternal, because people will never pay the debt off that they owe God. The Bible also tells us we have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Only God could defeat death and take his life back and rise from the dead. The physical, bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ for our justification. That's what the Word of God says. That means that Jesus is the sinless and perfectly righteous one and he is our only basis for forgiveness with God the Father. That Jesus' death and resurrection are the only basis of righteousness before God. So faith in Christ alone, not in our goodness to save us. So God the Father accepted 
the sacrifice of his son by raising him from the dead. So we see that this man was a special man. And this man we know, of course, is Jesus Christ. This leads me to a third thing. What is the true meaning of Christian? What the true meaning of Christmas actually produces? What did Christmas produce to make it so meaningful? As far as God and man is concerned. Well, at least it produced two things that are so extremely important to know. And the first thing is this. It produced a finished, complete, eternal salvation to all who believe in Jesus Christ. For all who have believed or would believe and receive Jesus Christ, it's accomplished. In fact, that's what John 17, 4 says. It says, I glorify you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. It's finished. He finished everything God the Father gave him to do. And, of course, we know also the Word of God tells us in John 19.30, Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished to tell us die. It's done. It's paid for. No one, no one will ever have to add nor subtract to what Jesus has done to have eternal life. All they must do is repent. Repent of their sins and unbelief and believe and receive receive it as a free gift from God. So the first thing for Christmas to be meaningful and what it produces is it produces a finished and complete eternal salvation. But a second thing that it produces that we have a complete destruction of Satan. The destroyer of our souls, the great deceiver, From the Garden of Eden even till now, he's deceiving people, leading them astray, usually by a religious system. And he's leading them away from God instead of to God, and they're thinking they're doing the right thing when they are slipping off into an eternity without Christ. So Christ would have to defeat our enemy of death, our arch enemy, And that arch enemy is Satan. In fact, this passage of Scripture tells us that the one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose. I mean, he came for this purpose. What? To destroy the works of the devil. So it was Jesus that had done that. Not only did he die on the cross for sin, but he defeated Satan and death on that cross. Death because Satan likes to keep people in slavery with that particular thought of dying, because there's so uh, death. We don't have a book that says this is what's going to happen after death unless you're reading the Bible, right? So people, when when it comes to death, they're completely confused about what it is. And, of course, the fear of death is a reality. Because if they don't know the truth, if a person doesn't know they're standing before God, they should fear death. Because death does have fear rendered and packaged into it. And yet, this, this is what Jesus did. He came, he produced for us, by paying the price, a complete eternal salvation and a complete destruction of the enemy, 
so he doesn't no longer can hold us. He has no authority over us. And, of course, he cannot prevent you anymore. Once you're God's possession, he cannot prevent you anymore from having eternal life and having your sins forgiven. You are now God's possession. So that leads me to a fourth thing, and it's this. For whom or what people is the true meaning of Christmas? So when, when, you, when you see that the true meaning of Christian, Christmas is really the love of God, and the whole purpose of the love of God was to redeem all God's children from the devil's hell and, of course, take them to a wonderful heaven, then you look in the Bible and you find that the people of the true Christ, of the true meaning of Christmas are, number one, who are they? Anyone who comes to the God-man in repentance toward the Father and faith in Jesus Christ. Those are the ones who come and understand the gospel in Acts, it tells us that solemnly I testify to both Jews and Greeks. That means it's encompassing everyone of what? How, do you, how, you, how are you made right with God? You repent. You turn from your sin toward God, and you have faith in the solution that the Father provides for your sin, and that is Jesus Christ our Lord. Unless a person does that, they cannot have eternal life, and they do not understand the true meaning of Christmas. A second group, which really goes along with this one, is not only anyone who comes to the God-man of repentance of faith, but secondly, anyone who calls upon Jesus for from their heart of belief. See, this is what happens is that we realize we're sinners and we, be, we realize that Jesus is the only way, the truth, and the life, so we come to him. As, because he's a savior, we can't save ourselves, and we ask him to save us. We call upon him. That's what the scriptures tell us. It says that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart, a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth, he confesses, resulting in salvation. And then there's a third thing. Anyone who is willing to forsake everything else they are trusting in to hopefully save themselves. In other words, you've got to leave everything you're trusting in. And what do people trust in? They trust in religion. They trust in, re they trust in churches. They trust in their good works. Some people trust in their money, that as long as they give enough money, they think God, God's going to look at, with them with favor. They trust in their, mor their morality and their ethics. They trust that they've kept the sacraments. They trust because they have confessed their sins to a priest and have done some kind of penance. See, if you trusted in any one of those things, and of course the list can go on, you would have to have done all those things perfectly all the time, every time. See, and what happens is that you and I can't do that, and that's, that's not the way you get saved anyway. But the thing is that nothing we could do we could have ever done perfectly. 
or consistently. We all fall short of that. We're all unable to do that. So, so when faith looks at the cross, it sees more than a terrible evil. Faith sees God at work and believes his promises. Faith sees this is why Christ came into the world. Faith reckons that if God has said Christ will save his people from their sins, then that is exactly what he will do. He will accomplish it by means of the perfect life, the death, the burial, the resurrection, and the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so God's plan in Scripture is always focused in on the cross and centered in on the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. You can never get away with that. There's no other way to be saved except through Christ. Now that brings me to a question. And this question seems to always come up. And here's the question, is salvation an easy thing? Well, we can answer that question like in a yes, with a yes or no. Some say that salvation is a simple thing. Just by following a certain, certain steps in logic, if you believe this or if you believe that, One's mind goes through this little system of logic and intellectually assents to the facts of the gospel. You believe Jesus died? Yes. You believe that he uh, rose? Yes. You believe he's coming again? Yes. Just because a person says yes to all those things does not mean they know God. It does not mean they're saved. Because they may conclude that if I believe those things, then I'm a Christian and all is well. Others say anyone can, if he or she chooses to become a Christian, do it. It's a simple thing. It's an easy thing. It is as easy as signing a card, raising your hand, walking an aisle, ascending to some of the facts of the gospel. It's easy. Yet, when you come to the Word of God, There are those who believe because of Scripture that it is not an easy thing. In fact, in this passage of Scripture right here, it says, and someone said to him, talking to the Lord, Lord, are there just a few who are being saved? And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door, for many will tell you, for I tell you, Strive to enter through the narrow door, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able to. It also says in Matthew, enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it, for the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life. And there are few who find it. So the broad road is more enticing because it's lined with all kinds of attractive glitter. Matter of fact, on the broad road, there are many different viewpoints. And that's good today, isn't it? You have your viewpoint of of how to uh, get to heaven or how to be right with God. Somebody else has their viewpoint. 
Some other system has their viewpoint. See, that's not a good thing. God actually has to move away all our viewpoints and just show us one viewpoint, and that's the biblical viewpoint. So if somebody says they have many different viewpoints on, on which way leads to life, but, it, but, but the reality is that the many viewpoints are wrong and actually lead to destruction. At the narrow gate, one can't bring in the baggage of one's own homespun philosophy or religion or self-righteousness. You just can't get it in there. See, the biblical message is one must come to Christ alone to be saved, that God accepts us only on his own provision, and that is Jesus Christ. Why is that? Because of the corruption and the deadness of the human heart. It is extremely difficult for people to believe. Unless, why do I say that? Because human beings need divine help in order to be saved. They need God to do his work because God has done all the work already to be saved. So our job really as Christians, if you are a Christian, is to wake people up to get them to think about what road they are on. And of course, you can only be on one of two roads. You are either on the broad road that leads to destruction or on the narrow road that leads to life. There are no other roads. That famous word today, I guess that the new word added to our vocabulary today is, are you woke? Are you woke? Do you know what road you're on? That's a simple question. Do you know for sure that if you die today, you would go to heaven? I also have to say this, that continuing in the faith, once you become a believer, is extremely difficult. We need God's help with that too. And the reason why is because we live in enemy territory. All the striving is not over once you enter the narrow gate because there's still the narrow way. So there's a, a plethora of things that can distract us while we're on the narrow road. Riches can distract us. Problems can distract us. People can distract us. Pleasures can distract us. They all want to lure us off the narrow, the straight and narrow way onto the broad way. See, the enemy's strategies are to bewitch our minds and to steal our will and to divert our attention off the will of God. So, so I say all that for this reason, that you must make sure you, may, you must make sure, profoundly sure, that you are a real believer. That you're just not faking it. You're just not riding the wave. You understand it. You know what the cost is. You know that who you believed, why you believed, you know now you love the Word of God, and you, you want to know God's will, you want to do God's will, even though we do it imperfectly, we still want 
the direction of our life to, to be to honor and worship God. That is the whole point of being a believer, not just to say, I believe all that and just do your own thing. Are you kidding? That's not what the Bible teaches. There's a, a profound difference when we become believers and we come to know Christ as our Lord and Savior. Everything changes. Our thinking changes. Our desires change. Our wills change. Our whole perspective, our whole worldview changes because Christ changes us, transforms our mind so that we can know the good and the acceptable and the perfect will of God. And we know that someday he's coming again or we may die before he comes. But the point is to make sure before he comes or you die, you know where you're going. That's the point. That you can know you have eternal life. That's what the scripture says. All the word of God from Genesis to Revelation is written for that purpose. So you can know. So it's, it's a profoundly real thing where the Bible says, with difficulty, if you notice in 1 Peter 4, it tells us this. It says, for if with, or verse 17, for it, is, for it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel? Question, verse 18. And if it is with difficulty, the righteous is saved. What will, be, what will become of the godless man and sinner? What will become of that? That's the question. What will happen to the murderer and the druggard and the drunkard and the liar and the thief and the adulterer and the idolater and the practicing sexually immoral person and the morally good unbeliever and the ethically good unbeliever and the religiously devout person who have been faithful to their belief and practice of their religion, but it's one that does not teach the truth. It does not lead one to an understanding of what it really means to be a Christian. See, all types of unbelievers from all walks of life, what will happen to them? Well, if they do not repent and believe in Jesus for forgiveness of their sins, they will not have eternal life. They will have eternal death. And eternal death is not an unconscious death. Eternal death is the second death in Scripture where a person will be resurrected from the grave with a body that can never die and spend eternity separated from God in a place called the lake of fire. It may appear, though, that the wicked escape in this world, but rest assured, their judgment is only postponed to a later time. Noah had a vessel along with seven other righteous persons when God brought the flood upon the whole world, upon the whole world. But what about the multitude who had no vessel? But remember, Noah preached for 120 years, a righteous preacher, to be saved, and only seven people came? Only seven people entered the ark. So don't think you can live in ungodliness and unrighteousness and in your own philosophy of what you think God will accept and believe in Christ 
uh, and, and have Christ as your Savior and everlasting kingdom if you are thinking all wrong about it. Because if you're, if you're thinking wrong about it, you'll be believing. What is the inevitable consequences of rejecting Christ? Well, the, the consequences would be you would believe a lie. If you're not believing the truth, you would have to believe a lie, any lie. Any lie that can conclude something like this. There are many ways to God besides Christ. There is no hell because God is a God of love. I've been a good person since I've been born. So I'll be okay. I'll rest on my record. Nobody really knows the right way. So I'm not alone. I'll take my chances with the men upstairs. I've heard every single one of these things from people, every single one. And they walked away with the assurance that they are fine. But you know what? That's not the true meaning of Christmas. Unless you know Christ personally, unless you have repented and turned to Christ and asked him to save you and him alone, you cannot be saved. Spiritually dead people are characterized by unbelief and rebellion. Their minds are not functioning spiritually, and of course, without Christ, they will not make it into the kingdom of God. All right, but on the other hand, on the other hand, just reiterating what I've been saying, the purpose of Christmas are all fulfilled in Jesus Christ. The price of Christmas were all paid in full by Jesus Christ. The products of Christmas were all accomplished and finished by the Lord Jesus Christ. The persons who understand the true meaning of Christmas have come in repentance towards God the Father and faith in the Father's solution to our sin problem, which is Jesus Christ, They are now on the narrow road in which they entered through the narrow gate, and they are on their way home. It's those who understand the true meaning of Christmas and can, at that point, worship God from their heart, knowing that God has done all this in their behalf and given them the greatest gift that they could ever receive, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. That's why, again, this passage says, she will bear a son and shall call his name Jesus, and he will do what? Save his people from their sin. That is the message of Christmas. That is the meaning of Christmas. And I pray that you really would come to know that, not in a theoretical way only, but in a practical and a real way, you would know for sure that if you were to die today, you would go to be with Christ in heaven. Well, I'd just like to say Merry Christmas and have a blessed, a God-blessed New Year. Let's pray. Lord, thank you this morning. Lord, thank you that the truth of the gospel is a reality. It's why you came. 
It's what we really need to hear. And Lord, we, we just pray that by your spirit, you would take the word of God, you would take the, the meaning of what it means to be saved, impress it upon people's heart, so they would too not trust in something that is, is faulty or that they're not sure of or that's going to fall apart in judgment, but they would trust for the first time possibly in their life in Christ alone. I pray you would do that, Lord. Work in people's hearts and lives. And for those who are believers, strengthen their walk. Make them more faithful than they've ever been. Make them servants in the church of Christ. Make them witnesses to a dark world. Lord, do that with us. So, Lord, don't let us wander off into some meaningless, uh, on some meaningless path that we shouldn't be on. But, Lord, keep us on the straight and narrow path. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for coming and accomplishing the will of the Father. We give you praise now and honor because of what you have done and accomplished in behalf of sinners like us. We didn't deserve it, but thank you for your mercy that you had compassion on us, Lord, and thank you for your grace, this free gift you've given to us that we don't have to work for but have to receive it by faith. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.